I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 13, please. Romans chapter 13. While you turn it, let me thank you for your ministry to me this morning. Uh, the scriptures talk about teaching and admonishing, whether in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And it's been a blessing to uh, have the word of truth sung and to hear your voices lifted up before the Lord. You can see on the slide that we're starting, you may have received the email on Friday. So we're starting a short series uh, for the next uh, counting today, four weeks, on dealing with difficult sins. I figured we just walked through Romans chapter 5 through 8 through the year, then Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, and, and really uh, profound truths about spiritual life that God has done for us. He's made us alive in Christ. Uh, we are no longer under the mastery of sin. We are no longer in the flesh, uh, even though we are still of the flesh. Uh, and, and so incredible gospel truth about how God has rescued us from the penalty of sin, has broken the power of sin, and one day we'll be free from the very presence of sin. But, but here's the reality I think most of us know. Uh, in between the point of our salvation, when we came to Christ and were made alive in Christ, and our glorification, uh, we're in a fight. And sometimes uh, we are losing some of those fights to persistent sin struggles. Right? It's not that we have abandoned ourselves to sin uh, but there seems to be this sort of tenacious bulldog of sin that we keep fighting with. Some particular issue or struggle or problem that we have. And, and we just keep getting hit with it. And, and so what I'd like to do this morning is actually take uh, probably close to 30 years ago, uh, I, I came up with four points that I used to help people who are battling with difficult sins. And, and I've shared those four points, but I've actually never opened up each one of them into a little bit of a deeper study. So what I'm going to do is do that over the next four weeks starting today. And what I want to do those this morning, because I'm obviously introducing the series, so I want to do a little bit of foundational work. And then, and then dive into the first of the four points, all right? So let me start this way. When we think about battling with difficult sins in our lives, there are at least three things that we need to remember. The power of sin to deceive and enslave us, right? Hebrews chapter 3 warns about that, right? Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So, so when we think about struggles with sin, we need to recognize the, the seriousness of the enemy. He, he doesn't just show up sort of on your front porch to go to battle. Yeah, many of you know I grew up playing hockey and, um, you know, there's sort of something in me that has always just wanted to know where, where the combatant is right? 
It's, if it's right out in front of me, I'm really not that concerned. We'll go at it. It's the one I can't see that makes me nervous. That's why I don't like to swim in the ocean. Right? I can't see what's around me. Right? And, and, and so the reality of it is, is that's the problem with sin. There's a whole network of, of effort that's happening, which is deliberately intending to blind you to it and harden you to it. And so when we talk about difficult sins, sometimes what we're doing is we're down at the stage where we seem to be enslaved to it. And we don't realize that that process has been at work for a long time. Right? And we want, I mean, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll just pick a random one, right? Let's say someone here struggles with anger. Right? And, and they're, they know it. And here's the thing. This pattern of sin has been at operation in their life, in, in his or her life, for decades. And they want, they want someone to sprinkle some pixie dust over them and have it be gone. Right? What, what has happened over decades, they want just a magic wand to remove in minutes. And they're not understanding the sinister nature of sin and how it operates and the way it is woven itself into the sort of fabric of your life so that it's not just a simple, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. It's gone. Yet people keep trying to solve it that way. Right? They blow up at their kids or blow up at their spouse and they feel genuinely rotten about it, and they think if they feel really rotten about it and, and confess it to God and confess it to their spouse, and confess to their kids, it's going to be gone. They're not understanding the nature of the problem. Right? That's not actually a good biblical view of what's going on because of a second sort of foundational truth, and that is... Uh, for both good and ill, we are habit-forming creatures. Right? And the scriptures talk about that. In, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 14, it talks about the unregenerate person and says this, their hearts have been trained in greed. And that word train is like an athletic metaphor that actually the pathway of their heart has been shaped and coached and trained in such a way that it functions this way. In fact, it's the same word that the Apostle Paul uses on the positive side of the letter when he says this, train yourself for godliness. Right? So, so here's, here's the reality of life. You and I know this on, on multiple ways. Habits or skills or, or practices that at one time felt really uncomfortable because we've never done it before, all of a sudden become like second nature. Right? Every man in here who ever tried to learn a tie, a tie a tie understands this. Right? You loop, 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 loop. And eventually you get to the point where, now none of us would ever do this, 
but you're tying your tie while you're driving down I-94. Right? Because you've basically mastered the skill, whereas at first it's like, okay, is it over? Is it under? Is it? And once you repeat it and do it, it actually becomes something that you can do second nature. You can do it almost without thinking about it. In fact, my guess is everyone in here who drives has at some point realized you passed your exit because you thought you were just on autopilot to some other place, right? You're driving along, daydreaming, and you just went right past where you should have turned because you're so used to going down this road for this other thing. Because we would not be able to navigate life if we actually didn't master a million habits. Can you imagine starting every day from scratch? How many things you did today that you didn't actually stop and consciously think about it. You just walked through it, right? You didn't think, I hope you did this, but you didn't think about how to brush your teeth. You just got up and brushed them. Right? You just, you just boom, you're, you're knocking stuff off. And here's the thing. That's a part of the wonder of how we're designed and also the susceptibility of sin to get us in those same kinds of grooves to the wrong destination. Just like your heart could be trained for greed, your heart could be trained for anger, for lust, for depression. I mean, I could take a million different things that have been grooved potentially into your life so that when the water hits that point, it just runs down. And, and that's a part of what we have to wrestle with. We have to work through that. We cannot ignore the ramifications of it. Now, please, let me make sure... I don't have time to unpack all of this, but it's a combination. I like the way uh, one writer, man who's spoken here before, Deepak Reju, says it's a combination of an idolatrous heart and an unsatisfied body. When you start to talk about sins that start to enslave us, you wanted something and then you created an appetite for it and a craving. And, and because we're embodied people, we start to have both an interior and exterior, if I could put it way, problem. Right? I mean, some of you, if you've followed anything about social media stuff and, and the way they do it, right? I mean, you know why they have all those little things you can hit to say you like or you love or you laugh about? Because every one of those actions produces a feeling in you that you start to get like a craving for. And some of us get, I'm going to put it in air quotes because I, I don't mean it's not an addiction, but because there's so much debate about addiction, but you get addicted to checking for text messages or emails or seeing if anybody's posted anything or making a comment about it. I mean, they built the entire system to put a craving inside of you that you have to satisfy. Right? That's, that's, that's 
a part of how it works. So for us to ignore those things when it comes to sinful, sinful things that are, are enslaved, right? Because the one you obey, you are the slave of. Second Peter chapter two, verse 19, Romans chapter six. Right? When you've handed over the reins of your life to some particular sin consistently, it doesn't want to give up those reins. And you need to recognize that, that that's a part of uh, not just the human condition. It would be that if we're all good, but of the fallen human condition. That there actually now are, are, idolatrous desires in my heart that have been cultivated and fed, but also a certain kind of pleasure principle that is just craving to be satisfied because I fed it and I need to realize that that's there. Okay, but all of that, we have to trace back down to what James chapter one says is that, that sin comes from within, right? Everyone is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed, right? Because here's the thing we have to recognize is that if we, and this is a lot of what happens now, is they want to sort of take the problem outside of you and place it all outside of you. And that's a mistake because ultimate responsibility for our sins resides with us. Right? If, if I, even if I am enslaved to a certain sin, I have gotten there by a process of choice. And I'm still not without responsibility to choose. Right? And, and, and this is the, I think it's the devil's deal of our culture, right? When people want to try and make you feel less guilty about difficult sins, they are trying to rob you of agency, right? They're basically trying to make you not responsible to make you feel better. But if you're not responsible, then you can't actually change, right? If, if I had no choice, then I can't do anything about it. So they give you a temporary fix of feeling okay, but they actually rob you of what you need to understand from the scriptures so that you can actually be okay. You can start to change by God's grace. You can start to see things move forward. What James teaches, and I'm going to lay this out in the foundation because it's going to be really important for this first point of it, is that that between... And, and you've heard me say this when I preach through James and have addressed this, but between the stimulus and the response is always a gap in which you make a choice or I make a choice, right? So, so something might trigger my sinful habit, but it doesn't actually control it or cause it. I actually make a choice in between, right? Because 
everyone is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And that's why James can say, let no one say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God. You know why he would say that? Because who's in control ultimately of your circumstances? Right? God's sovereign. So if you find yourself in a circumstance which you feel like is the blame or cause for your sinful choice, you're doing essentially the, the, the Adam-Eve deal. Right? The woman the serpent, right? If it wasn't for this woman you gave me, I wouldn't have done this. And she said, if it wasn't for the serpent, I wouldn't have done this. They're trying to avoid responsibility for making a choice to defy God. So we, we have to realize that there's definitely, there are definitely circumstances that, that provide an opportunity for us to sin perhaps a, a, a provocation, but we make a choice. And now here's the key that I want us to, or one of the keys I want you to see. All right, so, so opportunity, choice, or stimulus and response. When you make that choice repeatedly, or you respond repeatedly in a certain way, it, 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 it moves like this. The gap between them can almost seem as if they're non-existent. That's why I say it seems almost like an unconscious choice or second nature. And let me, again, I'm being a little, trying to be really careful. Notice I said unconscious, not subconscious. Right, You do something unconsciously is, is without deliberately thinking about it. I'm not talking about some inner thing inside there you know, that is the horse and you're just sort of riding it. That's what the subconscious is. Right? The, 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 the id and ego are there and the superego is trying to ride it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact is that you can do things without what seems to be deliberate thought because you've gotten so used to doing it. You've built such a natural response that it comes almost as if you never have thought about it. But what James would be saying is, there's always a gap. All right, let's go back to the anger thing. I mean, so that guy just pushes my button. And, you know, once my button's pushed, poosh, there's nothing I can do about it. I just lose control. I just can't do anything. What, what I would suggest to you is that that is an intensely unbiblical frame of reference. Because even the fact that you could see the button being pushed meant you were thinking about what was coming here and then reacting to it. But I've never yet met a person who claims that who isn't pretty selective about who can push the button? The person that will blow up at their kids or blow up at their wife doesn't do that to the boss. Why? He doesn't do it to the six foot five guy. Why? Because the cost would be too high of surrendering to the button push at that point. 
So there actually is some kind of thought process going on. There is some kind of deliberation, even if it seems like there's not much there. Now here's, I'm, I'm taking time to do this because really this is a part of the key to understanding this. Whatever sin struggle you have, if it's a difficult embedded sin in your life, uh, almost uh, like a slavery to that sin, here's what I would suggest has happened. You have surrendered to it so often that you have actually moved in such a way that you feel as if there's no gap left. I'm under its control. It rules in my life. I can't do anything else. And I would suggest to you that that's a fundamentally mistaken thought if you know Christ. Because remember what we saw in Romans? Sin shall no longer be your master. It actually is not the ruler over you. It is not a power that has the right of control over you. Only Christ does. And Christ has done what is necessary for you to put to death the deeds of the body, for you to put off the old manner of life. There actually is hope in Christ that you don't have to spend your life enslaved to some pattern of sin or some addiction or some some controlling vice in your life. You do not have to live under it because Christ has made the way for you not to. But you need to think about it biblically so that you can engage the fight effectively. So what I hope to do is talk about four truths. I'm just going to say them to you and zero in on the first one, right? The first one is that we need to make it difficult to sin. Second, we need to build up our resistance through the word of God. Three, we need to deal with sin quickly and correctly. And four, we need to establish an appropriate level of accountability. Okay, so... It'll be, it'll be from the Department of Redundancy Department. Okay, we're going we're gonna to cover those again. Uh, but I just want to zero in on the first this morning. Look at Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. All right, so here's the principle rooted in this text of Scripture. Right? This is the, the grounding of this first one of make it difficult to sin. All right, the text talks about a positive and negative response. The positive at the beginning of the verse is to cultivate Christ's likeness. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know the clothe yourself or put on kind of clothing language is common in the New Testament. It actually is a description of what it means to become a Christian. You have been baptized into Christ. You have clothed yourself with him, right? So you're actually dressed in the righteousness of Christ. You are in Christ. 
like being in a garment. You're in Christ. Therefore, there's a close connection to you. But also, and I just quoted from Rome or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, in contrast to putting off the old manner of life, we're to put on the new self. Colossians 3.10 says we're to put on the new self, right? So we're called to take the spiritual reality of our living relationship with Jesus Christ and, and bring it into realization, right? As I, language of Colossians chapter 2, as I have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so I should walk in him, right? If I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And now I need to live out that. And that's described as cultivating Christ's likeness. And here's the, here's the simple, like if I could just sort of drive this one point in, it'll probably come back up and up. But here's the key when dealing with, a key in dealing with difficult sins. The goal has to be Christ-likeness, right? It has to be being like Christ because that's actually greater than victory. Because here's the thing that can happen, and, and I've, I've seen it, you've probably seen it. Someone's got a battle going on with a persistent, difficult sin struggle and and they want something to relieve them of that fight. I want victory. Okay, and, and I'm not saying that's an inherently wrong response, but why do you want victory? Why do you want freedom from that difficult sin? Right, because is it you want freedom because you... you just hate what it does to your life? You hate what it's doing to your marriage, or you hate what it's doing to your family, you hate it, it's standing in the way of you being able to have any kind of happiness. Right? It's possible for you to want victory for the very same selfish reasons that you have engaged in the sin. And now the sin is no longer providing satisfaction for you, so you just want to stop it. But the problem is you essentially sold yourself into slavery to it. I mean, it, it promised you satisfaction. It promised you joy or happiness. It promised you a sense of power in your life or whatever, and you believed the promise and then all of a sudden, what began as an act of sin started to become a pattern of sin, and now it's like a, a master, so to speak. I mean, it's cracking the whip, and you seem to just heed its every impulse. And you want out of that. But why? Is it because you want to be like Jesus Christ? You want to reflect his character? You want to bring glory to God through Christ's likeness? Or is it you just don't want to be enslaved any longer? Right? And, and we have to be honest that there's lots of people who try to break addictions who aren't doing it for Jesus. 
They'll check into some rehab or submit to some program or be a part of something because at some point they realized the thing that they thought would bring them joy has brought misery and they no longer want the misery. But there should be something different in the heart of a person who understands who Jesus is and what he has done for them that the response needs to be different than a person who doesn't know the Lord. There's going to be some similarities in the process, but there won't be any similarities at the motivation level. A lost person is always being motivated about himself or herself. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 would say, right? We live for ourselves. You could call it enlightened self-interest, but it is still a self-interest. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to lose my family. I'm going to lose my health. I'm going to lose my reputation, right? It's all about what I might lose if I don't defeat this. And it's got to be for a believer about Christ. It's about Jesus. It's putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's got to be that issue that goes to the heart of the matter for us. Look at the negative side of the equation in verse 14. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So the positive is cultivate Christ's likeness. The negative is cautioning us regarding fleshliness. The word provision here. Is a, it's a word basically means forethought or foresight. Uh, it's, it's thoughtful planning to meet a need, sort of like in its general idea. Uh, it's, it's used of a ruler in Acts 24 of someone who through forethought has enacted things that were helping the, the region to prosper, right? So, so when it's taking provision, it's saying, listen, with regard to the flesh and its lust, don't, don't have any kind of forethought or planning to fulfill it, right? Make certain that your thoughts are not aimed at how you can satisfy this fleshly desire. You need to be on guard in regard to it and be careful. All right, so I think the flesh here is not your body. It's the, it's the sinful desires of life in this world. Remember, we, we just spent a bunch of time in Romans 7 that we're not in the flesh, but we are still of the flesh. So we still fight with the remnant of sin. I like the, the way one commentator described it in this case. He said, It's that principle or power of life in this world that tends to pull us away from the spiritual realm, right? It it makes us, it makes us the people who live according to the course of this world, to use language of Ephesians 2, chasing after the lust of the flesh and of the mind. Right, so, so there's a possibility as I live in this world, because Paul's writing to believers, right, that I actually might be setting myself up for the flesh. I might be actually providing a way for the flesh to exercise its influence in my life. 
and I need to be aware of that. All right, so just again, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to pound bullet holes. All right, so here's what he's saying here. I think I think at least what we can say from this is our spiritual growth with regard to difficult sins is not automatic. There's two commands here. Right? We have to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. So so here's the thing is if you somehow think that if you just like sing enough songs and think enough about Jesus, it's automatically going to happen. Then I don't think you're understanding the battle that we're in. Right? Growth, I think, for a genuine believer will have some level of inevitability. It will, it will show up. There'll be evidence of it. But growth to maturity is not automatic. In that growth, we must be active. There are commands given to us that we must engage in. All right, so here's the, here's the come back over here to the enslavement. And I've read these, all right? I mean, I, I, you know, it's been, I've been, it's been a long time that I've been looking at this issue, partly for my own good right? Because I'm still a sinner who fights, but also trying to help people. And, and here's what I say. There's a consistent, repeated theme of trying to get the believer to actually not be active in the fight, but passive. And it does that by either blaming the problem on outside. I mean, it's going to come back around again because it always does. Like late, late days, early 90s, you know where the problem was? It was in demons, right? So all kinds of books that would show you, here's the prayer you pray to release this stronghold in your life, right? And, and if you can find the right words, then boom, the claim of the devil on your life will be gone and you'll be free because enslavement to sin is some stronghold of the devil, right? Now, I'm not saying it's not a stronghold. I'm saying, show me in the Bible where it has magic prayer formulas. It's not there. Or it's some, some kind of sort of mental, spiritual jujitsu where you just get in the right state with the right thoughts and all of a sudden it's like the, you know, the, the lock just breaks and you just like. Whoosh. And all of that, in my mind, crashes hard against the rocks of a passage like Galatians chapter 5 which says the spirit and the flesh are at war with each other so that you cannot do the thing that you would. And here's the thing that cuts both ways. Just like in Romans seven, there are things I want to do as a believer that are good. And the flesh is constantly fighting against that. Then I have things because I'm still a flesh that I want to do that are wrong, that the spirit is fighting against that. There's always going to be a fight if you're genuinely born again. Anybody that tells you, you can somehow get above the fight is wrong. And they're leading you to despair if you actually honestly look in the mirror spiritually. Because if you think you have somehow overcome all battles with sin, you are woefully deceived. I mean, there is no place until glorification that the fight is gone. Until that point, there is going to be this tension there and you must be active in it. 
And in fact, in verse 14, you know then that, that growth faces adversaries and comes through adversity. I won't grow like I ought to until I become serious about the fact that I've got a problem with the flesh that I need to fight. As long as I ignore that, I'm going to be drifting spiritually because I'm not going to be serious about the fight with sin. So here's what I would suggest is the principal takeaway, and that is this. Win the fight before it starts. Make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. Right? And this is, this, is, uh, this is actually a biblically endorsed piece of human wisdom. Right? Here's the biblically endorsed. The prudent foresees the calamity and passes by. The naive goes on and is punished. Right? I mean, God says, listen, hey, you want to be wise? Have some forethought about where your pathway is going. See the possibility for calamity ahead of you and pass by it. Don't just march right into it. Okay, because the person who thinks, oh, I can navigate this with no problem. I can be, I can handle this. It'll be okay. That naive goes on and is punished. But it, I say it's a piece of human wisdom endorsed by scripture because you could probably fill these in, right? A stitch in time saves nine. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Right? The way I used to say it is when I talk to people, it's better to build a fence at the top of the cliff than a hospital at the bottom. Right? I mean, if you got people keep going off a cliff, wisdom would say, hey, let's put a fence up instead of let's build a hospital down there so after they fall, we can fix them up. Here's what God's saying. Don't make provision for the flesh. Get the fence up on this side of the cliff. Put the stitch in now so you don't have to do nine later. Take an ounce of prevention so you won't face a pound of cure. See the calamity and pass by it rather than walk right in. And you might go like, like, boy, tell me something I don't know. Well, maybe it's not having it in your head that's the issue. Maybe it's actually bringing it down to life so that you're seeing that there's a connection between choices you're making before you commit that sin and your committing of that sin, right? Because it's, it's, it's like sometimes we're all like Aaron after the golden calf, right? I mean, it's just, it's like, it, it, to me, I just sort of chuckle when I come across it because they say, make us gods. And he goes, okay, give me all your jewelry. And he gives it all and he puts it in and he forms the God and they worship and all this sin happens. Moses comes down and, and, and here's Aaron says, I put it in and this popped out. It's like, I don't know how that happened. Right? So, but how many times have you done effectively the same thing? I mean, I don't know why I scream and yell when I get mad. I don't know how I got sucked into watching that thing on TV that I 
A, a thousand times I've said, I'm not going to watch that kind of stuff. I don't know how I ended up in such a dark space in my heart and life. I don't know how I got to the point where I'm so full of anxiety. The fact is, you probably do know how you got there. I'm, and I'm saying, I'm, I'm not saying it to be hard, but I'm like, you've been down this path how many times? Right? If this is the first time you ever committed that sin, you wouldn't be in this situation. But this is the 80th time you've blown up at your wife. Or this is the 30th time you've ripped into your child unmercifully. Or this is the 100th time you've had to close out those programs at things you should never have been looking at. You have been down this path a ton. Yet you're not putting a fence up. You just keep thinking somehow when I walk down this path, miraculously, I'm going to end up over here. But you keep wearing it out. Right? The carpet is worn down. And you're not hearing what God says. Make no provision for the flesh. You need to make it difficult to get down that pathway. Right? That's, that's what it would mean for you to be active. So, so the two things that I always focus on when, when I think about this for myself, or I'm trying to disciple somebody or encourage them, two ways in which we need to make it difficult. The first is environmentally. Right? Sometimes we have to just be honest about the fact that we have set ourselves up for indulging the sins that we've become so familiar with. We've actually set ourselves up for it by the way in which we live. Right? So, so, so my guess is if you step back from whatever it is, and I'm trying to be as general as I can, I'll, I use little illustrations, but, but whatever it is, my guess is there are common times when you find yourself susceptible to it. Right? And that might be, might be times of the day, might be seasons of life. Right? It's been a, it's been a really rough week. And you, you should realize if that's the case, you actually are passing very close to the cliff. Because if you think about, say, the last 10 times that you have found yourself engaged in this sin that you detest, you would say, boy, at least seven of those, this was exactly the kind of circumstance or time I was in, or this was the place I was in. And, and, and so there's commonalities there that now I should be going, boy, it's Wednesday and this week is not going really well. I need to be aware of that. I need to start to take some 
preventative steps to guard against the tendency that I will have here because of this, because I'm, 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 I've got just chip, 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 chip. And it might be a bunch of, just saying this, or just to talk, a bunch of jerks at work, and it's going to be my kids who pay for it because they don't write my paycheck. So my child comes running up wanting to do something, and I'm like, because they didn't take their shoe off or whatever. And they're paying the piper because you are not recognizing what's going on in your heart and what's brewing there. And you now are coming into a circumstance and you haven't prepared for the fight in a way. So the two things I talk about is this. You need to build in obstacles and remove opportunities. Right? If it's a well-worn path that you're walking down, you know what that path is, so you need to start to build walls. And here's, I mean, this isn't going to work really well, but hopefully you can catch what I'm doing. Here, I'll do it. Here's my wall, right? So that when I come up to this wall, if I want to pursue that sin, you know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to make a decision to step across the wall. Because here's, here's where you need to be recognizing the gap between stimulus and response has become so tight, it's almost like you glide to it. And by God's grace and some wisdom from him, you need to go, okay, listen, if I start going down this pathway that I know I don't want to go down because I know it's not pleasing to the Lord and I want to honor Christ, I want to be like him, I'm going to put a wall so that I have to actually go, whoa, I got to step over that, right? You build an obstacle. You find a way to make it have to be a second choice, right? So that means you put in barriers that block easy access. Or if you've got a problem with what you look at and what you watch, don't make it so easy to do it. Right? I mean, you, you can have passcodes that make it hard for you to get across stuff. You can have systems in place that keep that from the case. I mean, every parent in here that has any kind of cable coming to your home ought to have that thing child-proofed. And actually, you probably should go up a level, have it any individual sinner-proofed. Right? So, so to, to get Past that, two people have to be involved in the decision so that you're not backdooring your way into garbage. Well, okay, I looked at the thing, and it's not, it's, you know, it's not that bad. And all of a sudden, your mind is getting sucked in to deeper and deeper levels of garbage because you didn't have to stop and think, is this pleasing to the Lord? Right, so build barriers. Put reminders up for yourself that engage your mind. I think this is a part of what, what the Lord was telling the people of Israel, to write it on their doorpost, to wear it on their sleeve. Constant reminders of the Lord's presence and of the Lord's will. Right? So what, what are you doing if you know you, you, you have a propensity to go a certain direction 
What are you doing to remind yourself of God's truth before you start to make those choices? What, what are you doing? Which might be simply, you know, it, um, you, you, you post notes for yourself. You prompt reminders, right? Because you're active. Well, it seems like I've got to work for it. Well, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Perhaps it means a purposeful pause for fresh resolve, right? If you've had a rotten day and you're concerned about what you're going to bring home with you with that, then maybe what you need to just pull over on the side of the road before you get to your house and ask God for help. Acknowledge the challenge that's lying in front of you and make no provision for the flesh. But if you come whipping into the drive and walk through the door and are like, get out of my life. Don't you know how hard my day has been? I deserve some time to cool down. Who's it about? It's about you. And do you really think that's going to help you not sin when you're going, hey, it's me time. No, it's not. So, so you recognize that because you could, and I'm trying to be as generic, but I mean, I could take a half dozen sins and I could walk you down the path that people go to and, and they, they're, they're like, man, I just, it just happens. It just happens. And you start to ask them, so when does it happen? What was going on in your life? What were you thinking? Right? I'm not, 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 not like, what were you thinking? But what were you thinking about? What was getting to there? What kind of thing was happening when you found yourself all of a sudden ensnared? And back it up and say, I'm going to put obstacles in the way. I'm going to remove opportunities. Right, I'll share with me. I mean, when if I go on the road, I just decided years ago, uh, I just never turn on the TV in the hotel because there's almost no hotel I go to that isn't a conduit of garbage because they've got all the premium channels in it. Right, it's it, it's like if I never turn the TV on, I never see anything I shouldn't see. That's that's removing the opportunity. Right? It's basically like, okay, I'll never turn it on, then I won't. Now, it's really a pain in the neck if there's a really important game on. Right? So, so I have at times, I'll call my wife, <laughs> turn the game on, right? And just stick right with the game. She doesn't always know I'm watching the game, too. Sorry, I just confessed my sin there. <laughs> All right? Or, you know, you can go to a restaurant that has whatever. But the fact is that I don't want to end up on the other side having let my dangerous potential for curiosity about some movie that everyone says is good and, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, right? And the conscience gets soiled. It's not worth it. Be better off, never turn the TV on. Don't make opportunity. Build obstacles, find ways to make it difficult environmentally. You've heard me say this before when I've counseled guys that are struggling with pornography. Uh, you start to ask them, 
here's, here's a common problem, right? Gas station, going to pay, magazines, right? Or go to, you know, go to some convenience store. There's just parading the magazine. And somebody who's been feeding the appetite, they walk in and it can start like this. And it, and it just starts down the hill. So, you know, a simple thing I say, you don't go anywhere that you cannot pay at the pump. Right? Go, go to gas. You got a credit card. Go to a gas station. You can pay at the pump. So here's the, well, that's, that's so pharisaical legalism not to go in the gas station. No, it's actually about making no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Right? If you can't go to that place without being in a situation that would cause you to be tempted, then don't do it. I mean, listen to Proverbs. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Well, that's so immature. Well, how's your maturity working out for you? I mean, I'm not mean, I am being snarky here, right? The person who, who belittles that kind of response while enslaved to a pattern of sin is a spiritual idiot. Right? They don't realize the shackles that they're building into their life when God gives them pretty simple remedies. And, and they think they're smarter than God. Right? They, they think that they can toy with sin and it'll be okay. And, and they're like Naaman, right? Shows up to Elisha. He says, go dunk yourselves in the river. He gets all ticked about it. I thought you'd tell me some great thing to do. Right? And that's sometimes people are like, well, there's gotta be, there's gotta be some profound secret to this or else I would have already figured it out. And someone's going, hey, do this. No, no, it can't be that easy or else I'd have figured it out. And the fact is, it's not complex. It's actually prioritizing Christ, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh, figure out where you've opened the door and make sure those doors are closed and nailed shut and and. No access code to it, the best you possibly can. And if you pull the door open and pop the nails out, confess it to God, get your nail box out. Right? It's, it's, it's really supposed to be difficult. And, and here's the second one, and I think this is really important. Difficult, I'm just going to use the word emotionally in this sense, right? Conviction is good. Do you realize that? God made us with a conscience for our good. It should not be denied. It should not be minimized or dulled. Because here's what I think we've got to see, right? We need to see it not as a choice just between doing or not doing some sin, 
We need to see the choice as between that sin and Jesus. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a fundamental betrayal of Jesus Christ. Right? It, it, would be, it would be like cheating on your wife or cheating on your husband because you've been betrothed to Christ. And he wants to have presented to himself a pure bride. And that's what 2 Corinthians 11.3 talks about. Right? It, it, it is actually a battle of loves that's at stake. And that's why we need to make certain that we see it in terms of that. Because it's the love of Christ that constrains us. Having concluded, right? Having thought about the love of Christ, that's what draws us to the conclusion that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. That the battle with sin is not primarily about whether I mess my life up or not. It's not even primarily about whether I disappoint the people in my life that I care about. It's not about whether or not I actually am somehow embarrassed or shamed by my failures. It's about how much I love Jesus. Do I love him more than, and you fill in the blank. And here's what I'm saying to you is, instead of trying to gut that, right? And I want to say it really carefully. Right, But here's what I think sometimes happens is people go, well, you're loved so much that Jesus doesn't care. And here's what I'd say is, that's not true. You are loved so much that Jesus is going to hang on to you in spite of your sin. He's not going to treat you as acceptable or unacceptable based on your performance, but on the basis of his righteousness but he desperately will be pursuing your holiness. He does care. He cares a lot that you not play with sin because he died to ransom you from it. He is at work in your life to make you like himself, to present you to himself pure and blameless. Jesus cares a lot about it. Do you care that he cares? Right? I mean, does it genuinely break your heart to love the very thing that Jesus died for? Do, Do you see it that clearly? Because until you see it that clearly, you'll be going, well, you know, everybody messes up. It's a mistake. I got to figure this out. It's just a problem. I can manage it. And you're minimizing the severity and ugliness of sin as an act of betrayal and disloyalty. And so you've got to lean into the love of Christ. You need to love Jesus more than anything else. And that's the thing that will start to make it harder for you to do that. 
right, make it difficult to sin is that when the occasion or the opportunity or the stimulus pops up on the radar, you will see it as a threat, not as a friend. You will see it as an enemy to your love for Christ. You will see it and hear in it the sinister nature of someone calling you to spiritual adultery. And you'll say, no. And by God's grace, you'll be like Joseph. And you'll just drop your coat and run, saying, how can I do this against my God? Right? How can I do this against God? See, once you see it that way, then you can begin to go to battle with it as you ought. So God wants us to repent and reflect on how we ended up in sin so that we can remove the things that actually helped promote it in our lives and renew our love to Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that, that you, you begin the work. You promise to continue it until the day of Christ. Help us not to be deceived by sin, thinking that the, there are little sins or that, that, that we can manage it. Help us to see it as a, a deep, deceitful enemy. And Lord, thank you so much that the answer is in Christ, that that we don't fight this fight so that we can be saved. We fight it because we have received grace. Christ died for us. He loves us, and we love him. Help us to love him more than anything else. Lord, I pray that you you would stir our hearts for this fight. We're... We are sinners. We live in an increasingly degenerate world where things that would have been thought unthinkable just decades ago parade themselves in our very homes. Lord, please help us to see that and not to get callous and indifferent to it. May you give us hearts that hunger for holiness because we love you and we want to be like our God who is holy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.